0: Welcome to The Digital Patient, where we discuss the latest advancements in digital patient engagement and share stories from the front lines. I'm your host, Alan Sardana, and with me as always is CMOSMD CEO, Dr. Joshua Liu. Today, we're joined by two very special guests, Dr. Neil Chala the Chief Medical Information Officer at WakeMed, and Dr. Peter Marks, Chief Information Officer at WakeMed. Neil, Pete, welcome to the show. Thank, Thank you. Thanks for having us. No problem. Honestly, you two are truly the Abbott and Costello, or the Kobe and Shaq, or the Lennon and McCartney of healthcare IT. You're really driving WakeMed's digital efforts forward with a focus on mission, data, and really making real progress in clinical transformation. I'd love to start the conversation just learning a little bit more about WakeMed's mission and how the culture really keeps you both so aligned on everything so successfully. Could you maybe
1: give us a high-level overview? Yeah, I'll start, Neil, please beg you to jump in. So just really briefly. So WakeMed med is truly a different place for healthcare. So it starts around what we call the Wake way. It starts around people who come here because they have just a laser focus on helping others, right? They're servant leaders. We have a lot of folks who actually leave WakeMed med and then come back, right? One of my directors came in this morning and said, I just hired somebody back. They went somewhere else just for a short while because The culture here is one that seems to attract folks, attracted me, attracted Neil. My favorite thing to do here has nothing to do with IT. It's a very small example, but think about it in a larger context. Here at Wake Med, when somebody's lost, it's a big hospital, people tend to get lost. You have to take them to their appointment. You can't give them directions. You can't point, even if they're super close. And you use that as an opportunity to hear their story, understand why they're here, see if there's anything we could do to make their visit to Wake Med any better. Sometimes there's stories of hope and inspiration that could be a birth. Sometimes there's stories of sadness, but that's the story of healthcare. It's just an awesome place to be. Neil. Yeah, I can't disagree with the thing there, Pete. I
2: guess I'll add is the culture and mission at Wake Med is incredibly strong. And I think the people all here, they feel it and they strengthen it. And we've got a pyramid, which is our mission and beyond. And that pyramid, literally everywhere you go, you look around my office, I can see too within of distance, but yeah, it's the real culture and mission that we are here for our patients and community is incredibly strong and it really supersedes everything else we do and really our real star guiding principle. And it's not something that is there in a thin veil, it's there and it's strong. And but it wasn't until after maybe, I don't know, seven, eight months of being here, I realized this it's the real thing. It makes us a great place to be.
3: There's so much to accomplish when it comes to your vision for digital transformation. I'm curious, how do you divide and conquer and how do you separate your roles as CIO versus CMIO?
2: You want to go first Brandon? Yeah, sure. So I think you know clinical and digital transformation is a it's a great topic for this because I think we both have had a part. I think in general, we function as a diet. I take a bit of clinical strategy and Pete knows definitely knows how to run an IT organization and well beyond that, a digital organization. And I think while we are pretty good in our own lanes, I think we also cross lanes a good bit with respect. I love it when Pete gets into the clinical lane and challenges me and he can it with both humor and respect, then we usually come up with pretty good answers. It's a great partnership to really figure these things out together.
1: One of the things that I really learned from Neil is not to be afraid to ask questions, right? I mean, you, Neil is unbelievably smart person, but will ask a lot of questions and we, we even tease him about it. Like maybe it's too much, but it's, you tease the things that you respect. And I think that asking questions has permeated the IS organization. And asking questions in a way that's truly inquisitive, right? They're not leading questions. They're, hey, help me understand this. And so I think we have really all learned from Neil the ability to ask questions and use that to help transform. I see a lot of leaders, to include me from time to time, that because you're in a certain position and maybe you have a lot of credentials, maybe you sit on panels, that you think that you've made it. And I think to step back and say, I haven't made it. I am still a work in progress. We're all a work in progress. And we should ask a lot of questions it actually helps more transformation than it hurts. That's been a big part, I think, of helping us transform because there's a lot of humbleness and there's a lot of genuineness out of that.
3: I love that. I love that. I'm love reminded that so many great leaders or maybe they're athletes or artists. What they have in common is they have the humility to say, hey, you know what? Yeah, maybe I'm pretty darn good, but I still have room to improve. And it seems like that's a big part of the culture uh, at Wake Med, which is fantastic to see.
0: Yeah. Pete, I've actually heard you say in the past, you two bring completely different strengths to the table. And the CIO, CMIO relationship is one that is so embedded into the frameworks of healthcare and the organization from an IT and digital perspective and really clinical innovation altogether. I'm really curious, how do you work through some of those differences that you have? You're starting at two different places and you're looking for a common goal or what's your structure around seeing eye to eye on those kind of things?
1: So between Neil and I, first, I I never look at it as work, right? So it goes back to the questions. I think we've grown into the ability to ask a lot of questions and and, and he's very receptive as as I am as well. Like I come from a background of organizational IT administrative. And so he'll ask me questions about that background and how it might affect how he's working on an issue. I'll do the same, right? He's a ED provider by training and still practices in that area. If I come in and I say, is there a better way to do this in the ED? There's no bristling at like, well, I'm an ED physician, right? That never happens. And it doesn't happen in the other direction either, And so it's not really work. And I've said this a lot of times, we tend to tease each other in a very comfortable way. And I think we both use that as a way for the other person to have a pause moment. Again, when you're working with a bunch of people, sometimes one of the partners will be excited about an issue. And so a gentle tease helps them find their balance spot again. And so we tend to do that a lot and that really works. But yeah, I think the bottom line is it's, not being afraid to say I don't know, or how do we do this, or we'll come in and say I have a crazy idea, and I need you to hear it out because I don't know which of the parts that are crazy and which of the parts are going to help Wightman.
2: Yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree more. I I think humor and respect plays a good role, and I feel like Pete. You know, we're, we're always in dialogue. The past couple of weeks of us being out of the office, like I uh, I miss Pete. You know, and I I won't admit that in public, but you know. <laughs> But yeah, I I think we're just always in dialogue about everything going on, clinical and business and technical within the organization. And so I I think that it just helps us talk through the different things, knowing that we see things from different perspectives. And I always admire Pete's sense of structure and being able to build the structure, framework and philosophy, and then slot the things in the right way, where I know I can sometimes have a little fuzz and... It, I think it helps me see things a lot more clearly. Sometimes I've got I've to break Pete out of the structure and say, okay, let's make it fuzzy a little bit for a second because yeah. there may be another way to think about it. And
1: so I think that, I guess, the healthy respect, and it keeps it working well, you know? Yeah, yeah. we drew on a, the whiteboard, not in next to him, we drew on the whiteboard a, a bell curve, and then I, we put chaos and organization, and we said, I'm here. And you're here, yes. but we meet in the middle Chaos and organization. I That's love that.
3: awesome. Uh, you know, one of the things we've heard you all talk about before is how important it is to get leadership team and board buy-in. So that way your initiatives are aligned with kind of broader organizational goals. Can you unpack that a bit more about like why it's so important to, to get on the same page as the leadership and teams and the board? And what's sort of your process to making that happen?
1: I'll start then, Neil. You please go. So the board of directors are people just like we're people. And they usually are a nice diverse mix of all kinds of folks. Some from the community, you probably have finance people, maybe some attorneys, people who are in healthcare and they almost hundred percent of the time, they want to be part of helping the organization become better, particularly in healthcare, helping folks. But because they have such varied backgrounds, I think it's really important that people in IS find opportunities to show where those IS things really connect to the larger goals. And so one of the things that we deliberately did is we created board goals and we worked through the leadership here at WakeMed and said, these board goals are gonna help the board of directors know how we're doing in security because security does just to IT. Analytics, can we measure analytics to say, are we actually using the data? Patient engagement. And so what we found was, and it was a bit of a risk is then the board was hungry for more information. And they would say, can you come in and tell us more about how you're transforming with clinical data? And Neil and the team went in and gave that presentation to a part of that board of directors just three weeks ago. And the questions, you can tell by the questions, they're really interested. And so I would tell folks, colleagues of mine, make sure that you get in front of the board of directors because they're curious and they want to know how this impacts healthcare.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I think we in IT don't want to be operating off on our own islands, right? We want to be embedded and a part of the operation and the organization. And I think the having board buy-in for the pieces we do helps with that along with making sure we're aligned with the organization. And you know, Pete was brilliant in the data analytics world. We struggled four years ago. We were the wild, wild west and instead of thinking about hey let's hide this thing on the side figure out how we make it better and then show it it was a bit more of a hey let's get the board to shine a spotlight on this thing and hey if we want to get better and more mature in data analytics the spotlight's good and the board will support and we can ask for resources if this is a real strategic initiative for the organization and so we were able to use the or goal as a way to speak to the organization in a way that is aligned with our mission and strategy say, this is the how, this is the why, this is what it's going to take to really mature results on data analytics. So I thought it was a brilliant way to do it by saying, let's take this thing that we stink at and make it a board
3: goal so that we get better. Well, I feel like, you know, some groups may shy away from that because if things aren't going well. You want to avoid the spotlight, but it seems like your approach has been, you know what, let's be transparent. Let's put the spotlight on not only the good things that are happening, but the parts where there are challenges. And that maybe helps create better accountability for us, more motivation for the team. And then I think also like once you succeed in it, your team gets that positive spotlight on it, which is, I'm guessing, motivational. So that's amazing. I hope other folks get to kind of see that as well. And and maybe they'll be more motivated to get the board involved. It sounds like that's not that common of a practice in the healthcare environment.
1: We we missed a board goal last year, but that's also awesome because (laughs) then the board of directors says, well, why'd you miss the goal? Our board of directors is not a gotcha board of directors. When we miss the goal, they say, why'd you miss the goal? And we went through, because it was a measure, what we struggled with. And and basically their answer is, we'll help you next year get to that goal. (laughs) So the board of directors is huge in the success of your organization. Yeah. Yeah. I think we
2: found that with all of our improvement as we've been able to mature. It's, hey, we don't want to build beetles that point at the green. If we point thing, we build it and it points at the green, what can we do? Where's the opportunity? It's no, let's build things that are in the red so that our system, we can all work together. and right, And yeah. so it takes that same concept into what we've done in other places
3: too. Do you also think part of it is if every time that like you, let's say you always hit your goals, like maybe that means you aren't ambitious enough. And if sometimes if you do fail, maybe that means, you know what, we are pushing them up a little bit.
1: Yes, absolutely. And if the board goals are the same as like the goals for the directors and the goals for the managers, um, you set goals, you want them to be excited to try and achieve things and you set the goals. Now, they're related to a performance evaluation, which is also sometimes related to money, which makes it a little bit sticky. But, right, if you just set goals that you know you can achieve, you're not really pushing the organization forward. What we try to do, and we're successful, I think, is set a couple of really wild, hairy goals. We meet every single month and we go through those goals together. If you can't achieve those goals because of some other circumstance, COVID or whatever, right, we're going to shift that goal around, right? But in the end, You have to set goals that are exciting. People want to come to work and do exciting things. They don't want to come to work and say, I know I can hit that goal in six months. I'm not going to worry about it. Yeah, I think those goals are, it's a great
2: and such a tough conversation. And Pete and I go back and forth for exactly some of those reasons. (laughs) They get sticky for some of those things. And yeah, you want to aim big and go for something big, but if you try your best and you don't get it, it can be demotivating say, hey, next year I just want to get something that can hit, rubber stamp, and move on. And so you can see kind of where it steps on itself sometimes. Our friend Dale Sanders says it really well when he said, hey, you know what, metrics are great so you can get and watch the data. When you actually put goals on them, sometimes it can actually make them worse because now are you just trying to cross a T and dot an yeah. I and not really care how you get there, just get there? Or can you have it there as a real marker for I'm going to do the right stuff. And by doing the right stuff, I want to hit this thing by accident versus I'm really going to try to hit it
3: when I might miss this other big stuff that is really the reason we have this goal. So it's almost like if we have the right process and process measures in place, then unless you're just really unlucky, the good outcome should happen. So it's like, hey, like tell your teammate, you know what? Sometimes we get unlucky, but if we focus on the right process and the right discipline, The good stuff will eventually happen we'll get there yep yeah our good friend teresa
2: our cmo of pop health says that well it's i want to run into goals by accident
0: not not say because it was the right thing to do and then we get the Mm goal yeah you've done a ton for patient access over the past five years since you've joined weight med i saw online that i think over 60 percent of your patients actually engage with your various virtual services and Pete brought up a good point at the top of the conversation around WakeMed is such a large organization some people are going to get lost and so wayfinding was one of those initiatives where you put in place but it was access to all the different services not just wayfinding neil i know you've talked in the past about this philosophy of people processes and technology in that order really with the emphasis on what can we fix with people and processes first and then layer on tech to make it even more optimized Using your success of the virtual care as an example, how did you apply that philosophy? Where did you learn it and and how did you apply it to some of these goals that you're talking about? That's interesting. I don't even know where I learned that, but being an
2: informaticist, I feel like people process the tech is just something you learn early on. I definitely didn't make it up and I feel like it's out there a lot, but I think it's that thought that, and we all know it, just implementing a piece of technology, it's not gonna make you better. It's really a matter of, are you going to use it? And usually what gets you to use it is, do you have the right people and process in place so that whatever you implement from a tech standpoint, you know, it's going to be used well and optimized. And while I like to say, Hey, get the people and process done first, and then the tech can support it. Sometimes you do have to do them all at the same time. Sometimes you can get the people process and they stand around saying, what do I do without having some of the tech that's needed? So sometimes they need to go together, but I think the important thing is for, by and large, most things out there, a piece of tech isn't going to fix anything unless you really have a people process that's going to use it and you can monitor and really
3: support it that way. One of the other initiatives that you've really stood out on, we've heard, I think, one of your previous podcasts about uh, enhanced recovery after surgery or ERAS. It's been one of those clinical transformation efforts. And for those who don't know, it's about standardizing evidence-based care pathways to improve surgical outcomes. And I know at WakeMed, your teams have scaled up this ERS approach, to, I believe, more than 12 surgical pathways organizational-wide, which is amazing. And certainly, IT digital plays a role in helping support these transformation efforts. I'm curious, how did you think about the role of IT digital in, in that initiative? And what did you do to partner with the front line to empower them to, to do it even better? Pete, do you want to start this one or...?
1: I think this one's your wheelhouse, my friend. (laughs) Sounds good. (laughs) Yeah.
2: So I think we've had amazing ERAS team here, started with cardiac ERAS for cabbage and other cardiac surgeries and it's spread and spread and spread. Um, Our ERAS team initially came to us and said, hey, we're handpicking pieces of data out of the EMR every day and it's taking us hours and hours and hours. Here's the stuff we want. And they gave us this list of about 230 different metrics. And we saw them and we're like, wow, to get that actually code all hard-coded, this is going to be probably six months of work for an FTE. So we said, this probably isn't possible. And are we sure this is the right thing? So it really, as we, we actually put it kind of on hold, we tried to do it knowing that we weren't doing a great job. And it wasn't until we really started maturing on data and really started developing dashboards and knowing why we're developing a dashboard so that it was less about the data and more about the outcome. And once it was a, Hey, what needles are we trying to move and what outcomes do we desire, we really got to be answers from a, okay, here's the pathway that we're going down and then, you know, a bit of, okay, you've got the pathway. What are the couple of most important proxy measures for this pathway that we can throw on the board to say hey, if you guys are meeting as a team and you've got the people process in place and you can really track it, hey, if people are hitting things one, two, three, and four, we're going to say they're on pathway. And now we're going to start really looking at the outcomes. And so there was a lot of back and forth to get to some of those pieces. But once we did the first one, folks started using it. They liked it. And I think that helped us to move to other specialties doing ERAS, where now, yeah, we've got 12 or 13 at this point that are out there and we're talking about okay we've got version 1.0 of the pathway now hopefully in the next year we're going to start talking about what does version 2.0 look like when do we focus on opioids when do we focus on intra-op fluids or warming or something else but we've got a nice framework and chassis in place that we can really build off of and that was definitely the idea too we'll do project number one version 1.0 but in a way that we can get more mature. Because again, they got 232 things they wanted and we probably gave them you know five. So we definitely wanted to come back and say, hey, as you run your people process, you get this pathway really in order, what are the next things you really wanna to do to move which needles? And so
3: that's the next conversation. Can I ask you both about prioritizations? I'm sure you get countless requests from clinical and other frontline stakeholders. It must be a very long queue of things for you to evaluate and consider. And so you're probably saying, I'm guessing no to the vast majority of requests you get. Uh, how do you think about prioritization? And then how do you think about communicating that feedback to the frontline staffs? You know, if, if you're having to say no to most things so that they still somehow stay engaged with you over time.
1: Pete, you all Yeah, I don't, I don't. People may disagree. I I don't feel like we say no a lot. What we do is we have a conversation, a large conversation with large swaths of the organization at the same time. So one of the things that we did on the clinical side is, because you asked earlier about patient engagement. Our patient engagement strategy was fed from what's our larger clinical strategy. And so we took the CEO and a majority of the leadership offsite, we actually took them to Epic's headquarters because we're at Epic Shop and we surrounded around Epic and we said, which of the tools and technologies that Epic has are the ones that we want to adopt over the next two years. And we brought in a lot of our key stakeholders who actually put fingers on keyboards because you can't just a bunch of VPs stand around drinking coffee and saying, we like this or we like this because we're not putting our fingers on keyboards or touching patients that much anymore. And we did it for two days and we've made it an annual event. And so in the end, for Epic, we say this is our two-year roadmap with Epic. We're doing that for other things as well. We do that for, and so we came out with what the priorities were and we set up projects around each priority. So when somebody else comes to us with something outside that, we say, well, here are the strategies and... That one may be important enough, and we could create a standard business case way of doing this here. That one may be important enough to put it back in there, but we're probably going to have to bring in some more resources then because you can only do so much with your kind of internal resources. To that end, I don't feel like we say no that much. I feel like we say these are the priorities that were approved by all the senior VPs plus the people who put fingers on keyboards. And this is the path, and this is the way that we can adjust that path. And we do it for almost everything. We're working with another group right now that is looking at a very specific project with a very specific technology. And I think that's important. I think Neil said this earlier. Sometimes people, they can only visualize by seeing a vendor product, and you have to accept that's how they visualize things. But you can turn it back around and say, we agree but where does this fall within all the things that you want to get done that has the maximum effect on patients and families? And so once you do that, people and give them a way to get that done, people can actually get pretty excited about that as an opportunity. And so imperfect, we're still a work in progress, but that has been our methodology so far. I would agree.
2: We try to show the stuff we're doing and make it obvious on, you know everybody has really long lists of requests and demands and really limited resources. And each right, we don't love saying no. It doesn't feel good. It's not great for the relationship sometimes, but sometimes you have to say no. But there's also that middle buzz of, yeah, well, it's a good idea. We like it. We want to get to it. We just don't have the resources yet. So what we do try to do is really be as transparent as we can and show with the resources we have, here's what we're working on. And as Pete said, we're, we've tried to come up with roadmaps and we do have multiple roadmaps of, hey, over the next 12 months, here's the next things we have coming up. If your thing isn't on here, we'll get with the operational leaders. And if this becomes strategy, yeah, we're happy to put it on. Knowing these are a lot of the bigger project things. We also continue to run that smaller engine for one of the smaller things that need to get done that are never going to be big enough to make a roadmap, but still important. So we run that too, but we try to be as transparent as we can on what our team spends time doing.
1: Yeah. And like the patient engagement executive director, she actually runs her own roadmap. And we are, we basically array resources on her roadmap, but it's a conversation because she may, and she's brilliant. I'm going to say that right out front. She's brilliant. She may say, I am interested in this technology because people visualize through a certain technological solution, but then the partnership happens when we say Epic can do about this much of it. And they plan this in the next six months. Where is our make versus buy on this kind of a thing? And then that helps her better articulate what she wants on her roadmap and that we can support. We do it really well with analytics too. We have partners that if we have to call in folks to come in for money, hired hands for money to come in and do some analytics projects, we have created a framework that they can just plug in and then start to create analytics projects that we just don't have the resources to do.
3: I think one of the ideas that I've heard from both of you now is sometimes folks come in with specific, let's call it solutioning or technologies, because everyone can visualize solutions so much more easily. But then the conversation is, well, let's step back and say, well, what's the problem that you're trying to solve with this solution proposing? And I think often it sounds like you're already working on solving that problem, maybe in different ways, and perhaps you could align them with, hey, you know what? Actually, we are working on that problem or here's where it is on the roadmap. And we have a way to solve it, just maybe not the way that you were hoping for. And often you're aligned on that, or or maybe, maybe, maybe you don't have it, but then to your point, it goes back to, well, you know, we have some organizational priorities and we have a a very focused roadmap. And sometimes we need everyone focused on the roadmap because you can't solve a million different problems in the next two years. So um, it sounds like you don't just say, no, you have a dialogue. You understand the problems you want to solve. You, you help them understand the roadmap and the priorities. And it's, I guess a lot of times people just need and expect that communication. And then once they all understand the priorities are, that actually makes it a very easy conversation, it sounds like. We ask often that question, what's the problem you're trying to solve? And even
2: sometimes, could be a few weeks down the road, sometimes we find ourselves having to come back and say, wow, we really got into a rabbit hole. Let's pull ourselves back and re-ask that question. What's the problem you're trying to solve? Obviously, with a good relationship and intent there of wanting to help and, you know, wanting us in IT to be part of that solution and to be folks, people come to when there is a problem they want to solve. That's the kind of partner that we do want to be.
1: But we we definitely try to ask that question a good bit. Yeah, we try not to be a black box. We we're having some success, but not complete success on publishing an entire roadmap of everything that's going on. It's harder to do mostly because like it sounds great coming out of your mouth, but then you publish it, you look at it, you go, it's too detailed or it's not detailed enough but we don't want to be a black box. We want that to be something that all of our customers can look at all the time and say, this is the status of this project or this project. We've created a, a couple of these and we're continuing to try and perfect the craft. The other thing that's important about that, I think, is we try and show how the resources are arrayed against the projects so you could basically show, are you backlogged for six months or do you have some capacity in certain areas? If somebody's done that really well, I'd love to talk to them. We show one, we go, eh, they'll love it. We show another one, man, eh, I don't love it. But I'd rather show it imperfectly than wait till it's perfect.
2: Yeah, I agree. And I think our data team did such a brilliant job. We showed them a bit of Domino's pizza, right? Here's what they do. You order your pizza and okay, hey, you know, phase one. Joe is putting your pizza in the oven and phase two, Sarah is boxing up your pizza and phase three, Mary is driving the pizza over. And so we say, hey, take that and see what you can do so that we can try to be as transparent as we can with folks. And you know, while it's not the exact, the, the beautiful graphic, we essentially have a good bit of that so folks can know where their request is in line, whether it's say,
1: hey, it's in line and in a queue or it's here's the phases, here's where you are. Yeah, and then people can plan around that. You know, you're in group six. Get on the airplane. There's not going to be any space in the overhead compartment. So, yeah, people want to know.
2: As you said before, Pete, trying to have the framework. So, hey, yeah. if, if you're if you're way back here in line and you really feel you need to be up here, then one, either we can try to reprioritize if that's possible. If yeah. not, if you or us or someone can find money, then can we go out and contract it and jump into the front of the line that way? So we we try to have some different options there again, as, as opposed to just saying, no, sorry, you know, we,
1: we,
0: we try not to do when we don't have to. As my wife
1: would say, it's all about the upgrade.
0: Yeah. A hundred percent. I love that because you know, the, the big takeaway here is that transparency. So it's like, it's all visible for people to see, okay, there's no resources left for me in this space, but if I can go out and get my own resourcing for it, perhaps that could change. Or at least just knowing where the status is for everything. I do want to speak to you guys about data in particular, clinical data and data analytics and really using data and possibly even AI to really get a better handle on what patients need at any given point in time, spot risks early on, and truly offer more proactive and preventative care. What are you guys doing in that space and how are you thinking about handling data for proactive preventative care? Clinical transformation is definitely a big program
2: we have. And we are largely measuring and trying to improve care through transformation, which is more descriptive and retrospective data. Here's the pathway. Here's the discrete pieces of the pathway. We're going to make it easy to say, Hey, are patients getting these pieces of the pathway and what do outcomes look like? That has largely been our model now for the past three, four years. As you talk about AI and predictive and I'll say the fancier things. We see them a bit as the fancier thing. They're up here, they're shining. We did toes in there a couple of times and we haven't been hugely successful. Do we think that's the future? Yes. Do we think the future is here right now and there's great stuff out here and we just have to do it and we're going to be able to predict everything. I'm going to say, no, I, I don't buy it. We want to get there. We want to get there slowly and mature in a way that's going to be sustainable. We also know that similar to people process tech. Just because you got this fancy score of some sort right here putting it in doesn't mean that we've got the project and the people and the processes in place to be able to use it to really drive a good care so you really we really want to make sure that if there is something up here that's shiny and we think that we've got a good solid foundation to be able to use it understand it well understand when it's telling us the truth versus a false positive of some sort And we have the people behind it to say, Hey, we've got a process to monitor, watch and see if
3: it's getting better. And yeah, we're definitely open to it, but we're not chasing it. It kind of reminds me how we've done some AI projects in the past and work around, let's say predicting risk of of readmission and discharge. And you could build a, like to your point, like a flashy sign that says, Hey, this patient has a risk of 80% readmission risk at discharge. And we've talked to clinical teams and said, hey, if we could have that shiny little alert for you, what would you do with it? Would you follow up more soon with the patient? Would you bring them back in sooner? Would you call them more often? Would you monitor them more closely? And the feedback we got was, we don't really know what we do with that yet. And so it was a great academic exercise to be able to build that sort of AI predictive kind of analytic but yeah. to your point, what does it mean for clinical practice? What's the change management required? Like are people going to actually adopt a change in protocol or practice with this new insight? And until you have that workflow piece solved and a buy-in for it, then it's just an academic exercise with AI that has no real clinical benefit yet. And so I think it's your point people often seem to underestimate the bigger picture and the other questions they have to ask when they implement, let's say, AI or other analytic technologies into the clinical environment. And so I mean, I agree with you. I think there's still a lot of work to be done. It's I think we'll get there, but probably not as quickly as people would hope or expect. It's complicated. It is. Yeah, I
2: think if you've got the program in place without the AI, the program's going to get you pretty far. The AI may make you better. If you don't have the program in place and just putting the AI in there, as as we're both saying, it's not going to get you there.
1: And there's so much AI going on right now. And I'm excited about it. I want to keep going. But I think just jumping on it, Without understanding your people in process, I think you're going to be disappointed. I think later on, you have a book question and I'm almost done a book called The Emperor of All Maladies and it's the the history of cancer and it's, I'm a history guy and I just love the book because it's not about, it's about the science, but it's how they got there. Early on, they were just taking chemicals and bouncing them against patients because there was a lot of money flowing in from the government to do that kind of work. And it makes sense. But we're pretty thoughtful about do we just start bouncing AI off of everything when we don't even really understand the underlying data well enough? We find that if you can at least understand your data, you could do things that can really benefit patients, but they're not necessarily traditional AI. They're just here's the workflow and it's analysis of, it's ANOVA analysis of variance. That's all we're doing. And we account for the analysis of variance uh, between inputs and outputs and providers want their patients to be better. They will look at those outputs if they understand the inputs. It's more simple than that for us right now, but I don't want it to be lost that that someday will change the way that we do things, but you can't just bring in a technology and then it changes the way you do it that day. You're going to be disappointed. And we've been disappointed with a couple of them so far, but we learned a lot doing it. So what I'm hearing is that technology is not a magic pill.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I think the the Gartner hype curve is is a great hype curve is a great curve,
2: and you know we th- we we want to wait until we know the stuff's going to work. At the same time, we don't want to miss the bus because we know there's going to be a time where it's working well. And so we're We'll be dipping some toes. We'll be trying. We'll be trying to build a foundation so when the time is right, we'll be ready. And I think that's maybe the
0: best way that we can say as of where we are and what our plans are. I love that. Another point around what you were saying on you have this data currently, but are we using it to the maximum potential that we can? You've said in the past, Neil, how not all data is equal. Um, you were talking about, I believe it was the keyboard price that we sometimes pay with all these discrete data fields and particular workflows. I'm curious, bringing the point back to people and processes. How do you go about educating and communicating the team on what is available, what the data can be used for, and really just how to navigate the various systems that they are using to be most clinically effective? Yeah, well, I mean, there's a, there's a geeky
2: data nerdy side of me that, you know, I've heard what others have said. Wow, if every piece of data was discrete, that would be great. But there's the, also the human and doc side of me that's like, well, you wouldn't be able to read a note for sure. And just knowing that there there is a cost to making d- data discrete, right? And folks got to click more buttons and do things in different ways. Where to the human, it may be less readable. Even out of the system, you can start to pull data out. So I think it takes someone thoughtful and deliberate to say what data should be discrete and what should be more narrative, and that can change over time as well. And I think what we what we find is we may want to do a project and say, hey, we what do we want to improve and move the needle on? It's X. And when we go in, we find, well, man, to get some of those processes, they're free, they're free text right now. So now we may have to go upstream and do some conversion to say, how do we change workflow again with getting buy-in and engagement? Hey, if you clinical team want to really track this, move the needle on it, we got to find a way to make this discrete. And I think when folks can see that direct impact of the outcome, they're a lot more willing to do it. If it's, hey, someone else wants this data and you just want me to do more work so someone else can run a report elsewhere, that's harder to get buy-in for. Or even worse, just make it discreet in case we need it someday. (laughs) That's even harder. So I think the more folks can feel that direct result of making something discreet and we're getting some
0: kind of data off of it, I think that's what builds buy-in so far in this conversation is so evident how big on data transparency you are. And I read somewhere that you were actually using it for a bit of friendly competition amongst providers. So showing them dashboards where they think they can actually see how they're performing on certain metrics. And I believe that's then being used for
1: some competition. Am I right in that or? How- I, I never feel like it's a competition. You know what, I a lot of Sometimes you'll hear this conventional wisdom that, you know, providers, you know, they don't want to take the time to look at the dashboard, but in the end, every provider I've ever met desperately wants to help their patients, but they have so much data and they are surrounded by so much data and it's hard to understand how that data actually affects the outcomes. And so what I think we've done is we've, we demonstrate how the order sets impact the outcomes and we let the providers just see it. They just see it. And then they If they believe the data and they believe what it says on the outcomes, they fix themselves, right? I fix themselves is wrong. It's hard to know that much. It's hard to know when you're talking about micrograms or milligrams of opioids and what's the effect on readmissions. You don't know. And so we just try and make it something that they know and they can see. And once they see it, they're like, I got it. And then they follow the order sets or they go and say, we should change the order sets. That's been the success. Neil? Yeah. I think, Alan, when you said that,
2: you probably saw both Pete and I give the crooked eyebrow a little bit, <laughs> and uh, not in a bad way. But I think co- competition is not our goal. Our goal is improving patient lives and using data to improve patient lives. I think with data, you can use data for good or for evil, right? I mean, you can take data and beat people over the head and say, make your data better, make your data better. That's not our goal. Our goal is to use data for good. And I think we've had a good culture here where our folks like and want the transparency and they've been okay with the transparency. Like, yeah, we can show names and it's not because we want to be punitive. We want all boats to rise and we want our patients to improve their lives to improve with outcomes. And so often by making things transparent, our goal is just to stimulate conversation. And as folks get engaged and have conversation, they know their specialty area much better than Pete or I or our tech teams do. And so if they're able to see the data, hopefully believe the data, and then have the conversations, they're going to figure out the answers they need to figure out to deliver the best care to our patients. And I think that's the piece that we trust implicitly. love that.
0: Well, just be mindful of both your times let's flip over to the fast five lightning round the first question we have and maybe Pete, we'll start with you because you brought it up already but what is your favorite book or book you've gifted the most
1: yeah so i well the one i'm reading right now i don't I, it's gonna sound awful but <laughs> i don't read that much <laughs> i'm basically working and going to the gym and hanging with my family. But I was on travel last week and I'm almost through the emperor of all maladies. When I do read, it's usually history and this is the history of cancer. And it's written in such a way that anybody can read it. It is a beautiful book and I'd highly recommend it. How about that? Neil, do you have a favorite book or book you've gifted the most? And
2: it's so hard. No, not, I don't know if I do. I'm kind of like P. I, I, I just don't get a chance to read as much as I'd like to. I think with, you know work being busy and kids at home and running the family, it, it gets hard. You know, I think, I know I, I read Good to Great in the past year or so, and I thought that book was phenomenal It has some great insights and research to back it up. But man, I can't remember the last time I gifted a book, to be honest with you.
0: Fair. No, that's okay. I, I'm in the same boat. I wish I had more time for reading uh, currently. So I think we can all agree with that. Question two that we have, who is a person either dead or alive who you'd love to meet? Dave, hey, do you want to go first? Oh, I thought you were gonna say you'd love to meet me if I was dead.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> he still might. He has an answer. Yeah. <laughs>
1: uh I'm a history I'm a history person. There's too many to mention George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Jesus. I yeah. just love to hear it. I'm fascinated to see what the difference is between the history and what they were really thinking. Great point. Yeah, I like, I like wise people with good
2: quotes and like easy, right. simple ways to live or operate. And so it goes, you know, by my mind goes like a Winston Churchill or like Absolutely. an Oscar Wilde who, yeah. I probably couldn't pull quotes right now, but in the right circumstance, I've probably got a bunch of quotes in my head yeah. that they
0: said that just makes a heck of a lot of sense for some different occasions. Totally. hundred percent. Question three, would you rather have super strength, super speed, or the
1: ability to read people's minds? I would Pete. never want to be able to read somebody's mind. I, I just wouldn't want it. It would be a miserable experience, I think. I don't know. I'm a gym rat, so I think I have the strength. I can lift things. Uh, so I think I'm good. <laughs> I would absolutely want to be
2: able to read people's minds. <laughs> this is why you're a great dyad, because
3: Pete doesn't <laughs> want him, and you do all the right in the mind reading. <laughs> yeah.
1: No, I read I'm this good story good. once about people who have perfect memories. They can remember every second of every day. Yeah. And they're almost all divorced. Miserable. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's too hard to have a regular relationship. So that's, I wouldn't want to be able to recently respond. <laughs> I get it. But Mystery
0: you, alive. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Question four. Uh, what is something in healthcare you believe that others might find insane?
2: Prior off. You know, if, if you guys know much about prior off. And so there's a there's a pretty yeah. famous doc out there, uh, Dr. Glockenplücken. He's mm-hmm. an ophthalmologist. who does a lot of YouTubes. And he's got that bit that's just hilarious about, hey, I'm the doc ordering something for my patient. And I was like, yeah, but the insurance company gets to tell you no? It's like, yeah. So they're practicing medicine? No, not exactly. <laughs> it goes on, but, oh man, prior off, pharmacy benefit managers, oh. just some things that... I, I just, I don't know how these things make sense. I kind of do, but I
1: mostly don't. Mine is similar. I, I think just the, the, the billing and the transparency around billing, I, I feel like we're going to start to get a lot better there really quickly. And I, I think that we should, but you know, transparency around billing and working with third-party insurance companies is exactly what Neil's saying. Yeah. Love it. Last question
0: that we have, if you could travel back in time to any event or moment, what would it be and why?
1: Did you have anything? Probably don't. I don't know. I'll be married 35 years this year. So I would love to go back to my wedding, right? And Fine. see my wife again in that context. Right. You know, it's great context now, but it just was a lot of fun. But from a global context, anything that would stop kind of needless killing of people, like go back to 9-11 and have the opportunity to stop. Nobody would listen. <laughs> yeah. be, they'd be like, you're crazy. <laughs> but if we could make a change like that, World War One, World War II, any of them right, to try and stop some of that stuff, that would be it. Yeah, yeah. I don't disagree with that, Pete, at all, on
2: both sides. I mean, yeah, my my thoughts from the personal front, yeah, you know, the day of my wedding or the birth of one of my kids would be, you know, wonderful to see again, although at the same time, it's, yeah, but I'm, you know, I've got the memories now, and, you know, and I got, with with phones, I got a ton of pictures of all those things at this point, and, you know, having the memories and moving forward and watching everyone grow, had just been, wonderful. So I don't know. I, uh, I kind of like today, even though, you know, as Pete said, there's, there's problems in the world that I, I wish we had more influence and power to decrease suffering, but at the same time, we'll, we'll keep doing what we can.
1: I love it. I love How about you, sense. Alan, Josh, Josh, what's your favorite question there? What would your answer be? I'm, now I'm curious. Traveling back in time Oh no. Yeah, one? any of your favorite question. But the, that's fine. The
3: the one that, that I have the most like enthusiasm for is the one about what superpower would you want to have? I'm just like you. Like I did not want to read someone's mind. It it would it would totally drive me insane. Yeah. But super speed, if I could just like almost like teleport anywhere, yeah, that'd be pretty neat. And that'd <laughs> be pretty cool.
0: Yeah. If I was to answer any of them, that's my favorite. Honestly, the the what do I believe about healthcare that mm-hmm. others find insane? My answer is basically the same as both of your answers, but it is just insane to me, the payment structure of healthcare. And uh, yeah, I, I, it keeps me up. at night just thinking about like some of these problems, but it's such a complex web that it's not, it's not so simple as, you know, let's just, we well, it will change that. The, the one implementation. Yeah. So. It's
1: a balloon. If you push too hard on one side of the balloon, you're going to break something else on the other yeah. side. You know, I mean, There's a lot of healthcare for the indigent gets paid for through other methodologies. And so we've been around where we've seen somebody say, well, we're just going to, from a balloon perspective, we're going to cut this money that's coming in, in this area. And that really means that the folks who are indigent won't get the care that they need. But Um, I'm hopeful that we can continue to go down that path of transparency. Yeah. And I want to believe that it wasn't,
0: you know, it was set up with good intentions all along the road. You know what I mean? but yeah, it's just, how did we get here? It's crazy. And actually, Neil, when you said the last question, you know, travel back in time, you wanted to pick kind of the same thing as me. I was thinking you wanted to go back to Pete's wedding too. And
1: I thought, <laughs> I was like, that's kind of strange. It was a blast. But, yeah. I, would love that, you know, I, I think he'd only been 10 years old or something. <laughs> but to, pee, to see Pete with hair yeah, would be awesome. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I love it. I've only
1: seen pictures. I, <laughs> words <laughs> words heard, man. Words heard.
0: <laughs> see if you could read my mind. Yeah. But Neil and Pete, I really want to thank you both for taking the time to, to come on the show today and share some of your wisdom with our audience. Hopefully there's some folks who are listening to this that maybe have questions that they want to get in touch with you guys about, or vice versa. Maybe they have answers to some of these, the status questions that you're wondering about resourcing and all that. So hopefully we can find some relationships to help everybody out here, but that's a wrap for this episode of the Digital Patient Hosted by Sino MD. You can follow us on Twitter, at SeamlessMD. And if you like the podcast and you want to learn more, please visit www.seamless.md. Pete, Neil, again, thanks so much. Thank you.